Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where I, Rich Lowry, discuss with Andy McCarthy the latest legal and national security issues. This week, what else? Trump updates in New York, D.C., Georgia, and Florida. Plus, Hunter Biden testifies. If for some reason you're not already following us on streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please give this podcast and Andy McCarthy the glowing and need gushing five-star reviews that they deserve on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this very podcast through the miracle of Riverside, none other than Andy McCarthy. Rich, how are you? Good, Andy. How are you? I'm exhausted. You know, I, I think we always we always knew from talking about it the last couple of years that um, the way this had been, the way this approach to the 2024 election had been teed up by Democrats, there was always going to be a thud at some point. And I think the thud has started. And it's one thing to talk about it, but it's quite another thing. I mean, look, we're only, uh, all we're doing is trying to analyze it and write about it. You know, there are people who are actually, Trump in particular, who's living through it with a target on his back. So I don't want to, I don't want to sound like poor us, but it just does seem that if you're going to cover things and do them justice, there's a lot coming at us in a very short period of time right now. Yeah. So let's, let's hit, it seemed like the, the big story yesterday recording on Thursday was, was Trump's appeal saying that he, he couldn't do the, the full, uh, whatever it is, 400 um, uh, 454. Yeah, and I was going to do 100, and and he got, I guess, partial relief on that. We'll get get to that. But then there was the even bigger news that the Supreme Court is taking up Trump's uh, immunity case, which has caused outrage. I think very telling <laughs> outrage that th- this thing is a it's it's meant to be a political act. It's on a political schedule. Everyone on the other side is desperate to see it done before the election. So, so they're, they're enraged that the Supreme Court would actually consider this really important and fraught question that it hasn't directly addressed before because it's going to delay and, and maybe totally put off this, this January 6th case, uh, at least before the election. But what do you, what do you make of what the Supremes have, do, have done here? Yeah, Rich, the, the momentous question of constitutional law that was so momentous that wasn't it five minutes ago that Jack Smith himself went to the Supreme Court and said, we have to cut the appellate, the, the D.C. Circuit out of the process because it's utter, utterly important. It's like a, a matter of uh, unprecedented constitutional importance that the court quickly grapple with this issue. So he wanted the court to take it. He told him it was absolutely essential that they take it and that they needed to do it quickly. Um, and now that they've done what Smith initially told them they needed to do, the left is freaking out that they're doing it. Um, so, and it's not just the left, it's all the, you know, the, I just think we, we talk about this virtually every week, but Trump has so infected the minds of people who used to be sensible that they can't think straight anymore. This is the most idiotic freak out of all the freak outs I've seen in the last, oh, I don't know, three days, it seems like <laughs> with some regularity. I mean, first of all, as you just pointed out, this is a question that the Supreme Court has not settled. The fact that they take the case, I mean, when I read yesterday that where they're saying, you know, MAGA has captured the Supreme Court, let's take a step back and think about this Supreme Court. Before um, Katanji Brown Jackson was on it, and she's probably um, as 
much of progressive judges there's been on the court. I mean, she's got competition from Sotomayor, but um, she she's very left wing. But before she ever got on the court, this Supreme Court sided with Democrats in Congress who were trying to subpoena Trump for his financial records and the Manhattan District Attorney who was trying to subpoena Trump for his financial records. He claimed that he had immunity from being investigated. They said, you don't have immunity. So why they think that the court that did that, which I, I think those decisions, Rich, if I'm reading, they're, they're less than two years old, right? Um, Mazars and um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head what the name of the, the uh, Congress one, what the name of the two cases were. But um, it was at the end of the term, I think two years ago, that they ruled against Trump on these immunity questions. There's no reason to think that they've changed their mind about any of that. Smith himself told the court that he thought it was important that the court weigh in. All the people who say, but we have this wonderful decision from the D.C. Circuit, which, by the way, I agree is a wonderful decision. I thought they did a great job. But I would point out that five minutes before they made their decision, the same people were complaining that they were taking too long to decide it and that the Bush-appointed judge must be sabotaging the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. then, they, then they come out with the decision. It turns out the decision is like gold. It's like everything they could possibly hope for. And nobody stops and says, you know, when you have three smart judges who want to put out, who don't necessarily agree on everything, but would like in the moment to put out a decision that's unanimous so that they're speaking with one voice, they know it's a monumental case, so it's got to be well-crafted and deeply researched. That actually takes time to get people to agree and then put out a product of high legal quality that'll stand up when the Supreme Court likely scrutinizes it. Um, so they went from like being hysterical that they weren't deciding fast enough to then the decision comes out, and it's like it's now got to be the decision after they five minutes before said it was important that the court cut the circuit out of the process. So this wonderful decision that they're talking about, if it hadn't been for the Supreme Court, we wouldn't have it. What Jack Smith wanted was to cut them out. What the Supreme Court said is procedurally that would be irregular, and there's no reason, you know, the fact that you, Jack Smith, are in a hurry to get this guy convicted prior to Election Day doesn't mean that we are. Um, so we're going to do our regular process. Plus, it benefits the Supreme Court to have the decision from the D.C. Circuit. That's what they want. They want to have a good decision from the courts of appeal so that they, when they decide the case, they have the benefit of that. So it's only because of the Supreme Court that we have the D.C. Circuit decision that they all like so much. And the other thing is, looking at this Supreme Court, we've discussed this, this case before, Rich. I don't see any chance that this Supreme Court would conclude that Trump has immunity from criminal prosecution. I, in fact, think that if this Supreme Court had been the Supreme Court in 1982, when they decided the Nixon case that said presidents have uh, liability from civil lawsuits, this Supreme Court would not have decided that case that way, because this Supreme Court is a textualist uh, originalist Supreme Court, and the proposition that presidents have immunity from criminal or civil pro uh, prosecution or civil lawsuits 
is not in the Constitution. It's basically something that the court made up in 1982. They derived it from, you know, a, a mind-bending analysis of separation of powers. But there's nothing textually in the Constitution that says that uh, presidents have immunity from anything. And in fact, the Constitution leans the other way, right? It says that even after a president has been impeached and convicted, the president can still be prosecuted in the criminal courts. That's what it, you know, that's what it says. So why would anyone who follows this Supreme Court think that it's going to come out any differently when it's already got a track record of, of this Supreme Court of ruling against Trump on immunity issues? And when there, there's nothing, given what this court's proclivities are, there's no reason to think that it would depart from that. I, I just, it's, it's just remarkable to me. And I, I guess the last thing I want to say about it, Rich, is yes, the fact that the court will now hear this case in mid-April and probably not decided until late June means that Judge Chutkin can't act on the case for the next three months. But, so, but as we literally can't, even if she wanted to. Correct, because she doesn't have jurisdiction. We, you know, in federal practice, you litigate in front of one court at a time. Mm -hmm. So once this case went on appeal, jurisdiction of it was taken by the D.C. Circuit. Now jurisdiction's with the Supreme Court. And it, it's a, the reason for this, Rich, is just really common sense. If the higher court is deciding a case, you want the court to decide the case on the basis of the complete record. So you don't want the lower court changing the record while the Supreme Court is um, is analyzing the case. So you freeze it and it's frozen. So yes, she can act on it. But I think there's less there than meets the eye because as, as we've also discussed, much more important now than the immunity issue, which Trump is going to lose in the Supreme Court, is the obstruction issue. The court has taken the obstruction case, the Fisher case, from the January 6th defendants. And as a practical matter, even if Judge Chutkin had been able to act on the case until the end of June, she couldn't have started the case until the Supreme Court rules on the obstruction case. So, this case was not going to trial until at least sometime in July or August, at best, on account of the obstruction. So the idea that like this is this terrible delay that now throws out any chance of uh, Jack Smith getting Trump uh, convicted before uh, Election Day, as if that were a judicial or a law enforcement concern, that is a democratic political concern. And not just Democrats, there are anti-Trump Republicans too who are uh, who are steamed about this, but it's simply not a judicial concern. And I, I guess I keep saying I only have one more thing to say about this, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm rant. But the other thing, Rich, that we should recognize here is the 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 fiction that's underneath all of this is that. The Democrats and the anti-Trump people have maintained from the start that Trump led an insurrection. And if they had evidence that Trump had led an insurrection, he could have been easily and quickly indicted for it and convicted for it. There would be no litigation over Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because you would be able to say, we have here a certificate of conviction 
that in a federal court, this guy was convicted of insurrection. If Jack Smith had an insurrection case, that's a straight line case. He could have just brought it. Instead, he's brought a complicated case invoking obstruction, which in, in his case is more questionable than the obstruction that has troubled the Supreme Court in the January 6th cases. He's brought a civil rights law uh, count under a law that is designed to protect people in the act of voting, which he wants, he theoretically thinks should apply to Trump's effort to get the vice president to invalidate ballots, which I think the Supreme Court, if it gets before the Supreme Court, is going to laugh out of the, the building. And then the other thing is he's brought a fraud case under circumstances where, admittedly under a different statute, the Supreme Court said a year ago, reminding prosecutors that fraud in federal law is a financial crime, not a vehicle for imposing the progressive view of what good governance is. So Jack Smith has had to bring a complicated case because he doesn't have evidence of a straightforward January 6th insurrection or sedition related offense. So the bipolar nature of this whole thing is that Democrats and anti-Trumpers insist that the public buy their narrative that Trump led an insurrection. And now they're mad because Jack Smith doesn't have an insurrection case. So this complicated thing he's thrown together is their proxy for getting him convicted of insurrection because they don't have an insurrection case. Mm -hmm. And that's really what this all comes down to. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of two, two acts of substitution going on. One is that he wasn't convicted in the impeachment case. So they've been desperate to kind of make up for that. And they don't have an insurrection case. So they're desperate to make up for that. So, so you end up with this, this convoluted adventurous uh, case to, to because they, because the, the political remedy didn't happen, which, which you, you favored. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't like the, the articles. Maybe I was too pedophagy about that in, in retrospect. Uh, and, and that just the facts aren't there for the insurrection case. So you, so you, so you get this kind of convoluted mess. Yeah. And, and the thing is using, um, when you use one proxy for another process, um, and it turns out that that, the thing that you want to use as a proxy has its own procedures and its own rules. It's always a mess. You know, I remember when we were arguing in uh, in 1993 about whether the Justice Department was going to let me charge the blind shake with sedition. And every day there was a new question about it. So when we finally arrested him, we arrested him not on a criminal charge, but on immigration. And, you know, everybody said, oh, all right, well, that's a relief. We have him arrested now. And it wasn't a relief because because immigration, even then had its own processes. And what ended up happening was there was a major protest and demonstration in one country um, that whose government, you know, under the immigration rules, because of his status, he had to go back to a different country. And there's a list of like, it's either the last country you were in or the country of which you're a native or any country that'll take you, you know, there's a sliding scale. And Already, there was one set of violent protests that went on in one country where the regime didn't want him and the Islamists did want him back. And then the next country that was was up at bat under the immigration process um, was a country that 
would have been a big problem if it had been had been destabilized by those kinds of protests. So what we realized is, you know, we invoked one process to get out of a problem where, you know, we couldn't make up our mind as a government whether we wanted to prosecute this guy criminally or not. So we just said, oh, we'll stick him in this process. And it turns out that that didn't work. It was a, you know, a near catastrophe. And I think this is the same thing. They want this prosecution to be their proxy for the impeachment and removal that didn't happen. But the problem they have is the criminal system is not the impeachment system. And it's got its own rules, and it's got very different presumptions. For example, the president in an impeachment proceeding does not get a presumption of innocence. You know, it's a political process, very different. In the criminal system, you may hate Trump, but like I would suggest to the Democrats out there, forget, let's take Trump out of it. Let's pretend this is a an Al-Qaeda terrorist who you would volunteer to go down to Guantanamo Bay and represent, right? Um, take Trump out of it. If, if it was that kind of a defendant, they would be they would be the ones telling us, you know, look. This is not a this is not a rush to judgment here. We have to make sure this is fair. We have to make sure that he gets all of the rights of the Bill of Rights. You, you, well, haven't, you haven't written that yet, have you? Um, I, I think in my mind I've written it uh, okay. several times in the last twenty four. Right. Um, all right. So let, let's get to New York and the financial stuff before we do. But let me let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com, your way around our meter paywall, your way if you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads. When you're not logged in, occasionally I'm not logged in, I see all the ads. They're, they're annoying. I, I get it. But <laughs> we need to try to pay our bills uh, one way or the other. And it's better if you just just uh, uh, sign up and it makes it a, a much be better reading experience. You can also comment on articles and blog posts if that floats your boat and get invited to exclusive events and calls with the writers and editors. Charlie, MBD, and I are doing one of these NR Plus Zoom calls tomorrow where we have about 100 people on and we just literally just start to say, what do you guys want to talk about? You know, what are your comments? What are your questions? We don't even insist on comments in the form of questions. We, we just, we're happy to take anything. It's, uh, it's a re real uh, fun fun experience. So- uh, could, you, could you get could you get MBD to like pass a hat for Ukraine? And, and <laughs> that would like just get the conversation rolling. Yeah, get some vo voluntary uh, donations. But anyways, great deal is very important to us. Your way to read uh, Andy McCarthy, among other things, unobstructed. So if you're not already a member, please consider uh, becoming one doesn't cost much. So speaking of costing much, we, we <laughs> have this uh, uh, in, in, incredible situation where in the the civil system, you need, if you're going to appeal, you need to put up the the penalty uh, as a, a assurance of sincerity and and other things. And the, the penalty is between the, the business case, business fraud case, and the E. Jean Carroll case. You know, adds up to five hundred million. You know, half a billion dollars or so. 400 of that or so is the, the business case. Letitia James is on uh, X, uh, gloating about this every single day, posting the new number with the uh, interest. And Trump, you know, is not, not as rich as he wants to appear and certainly not as liquid as, as you would hope, as, as you've been pointing out last couple of weeks, probably going to have trouble posting this. And lo and behold, we get the filing yesterday. I, I can come up with 100. <laughs> <laughs> so, 100 million yeah you know. so uh so what's what's going on here 
Well, uh, that interesting, Rich, is that you uh, just mentioned is uh, it's eye popping. It's one hundred and twelve thousand dollars a day uh, because of the breadth of this uh, this award four hundred and fifty four that's, that's million. Up. It's just amazing. Um, so. I want to just take a second because I think I've confused this. A lot of lawyers do do confuse people on this because you would listen if you listen to us, um, you would think that you have to like um, you have to buy the right to appeal, and that's not really exactly how it works. Although it's the it's the um, practical reality of it. So just so people understand, the rule is basically the same in the federal system and the state system. But there's two different things that you have to keep your eye on. One is your right to appeal, which you have to file for within 30 days. Although if there's post-trial litigation, that can be told by the the post-trial litigation. So for example, there's no post-trial litigation in the the New York fraud case. There's going to be post-trial litigation. I think it'll be brief. But in the E. Jean Carroll case, Trump is going to make post-trial motions and try to get that reduced. He didn't even bother with that with uh, Judge Engeron in the other case. So on the one hand, you have 30 days from the end end of the proceedings in the trial court to, to appeal. And there's nothing in that rule that says that you have to put up money in order to appeal. Where that comes from is the other rule that's relevant, which is if you're the plaintiff and you win a civil case with damages, there is an automatic 30-day stay on your ability to enforce the judgment. So in other words, you can't, the minute the jury comes in or the minute Judge Engeron in a bench trial makes his ruling, you can't run out and start to try to either get Trump's money or or seizes property. There's a 30-day stay. And it's expected that what's going to happen in the course of that 30 days, because it roughly tracks the same 30 days that you have to appeal if you're the defendant, that during that 30-day period, you're going to get a bond that fully secures the amount of the damages and ask the court, if you pay that into the into the court, to stay the ability of the plaintiff to enforce the judgment while you're appealing. So it looks like essentially you're being made to pay for the appeal, but what you're actually paying for is to stop them from enforcing the judgment until the appeal can run its course. Mm -hmm. So as you can see, practically speaking, it's the same. So so you're putting it up to stop them from actually taking it. Correct. And that's why for Trump, um, you can see why the thing is, if you couldn't get a bond and therefore they're able to start enforcing the judgment and you have to start selling property and all that stuff, your appeal is illusory, you know, because yes, you can still appeal, but by the time you appeal, everything's gone, mm-hmm. you know, and good luck and good luck getting it back. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why. The shorthand for this is that people say you have to pay to appeal in the civil system, but that's why it's like like Rich just said. You're what you're what you're doing is stopping them from being able to execute. So this is why it's critical for Trump to put together enough 
financing that he can get a bond. And he now needs a bond not only to cover this $454 million judgment, which is is increasing by $112,000 every day, which means just to appeal that case, it's going to be closer to $500 million uh, alone. And then the other thing that's going on is in the E. Jean Carroll case, he got an $83.3 million judgment. Um, and with the same idea, with interest, you're going to have to post about $90 million to stay that. So what we're talking about may be actually closer to $600 million that he's got to pull together, Rich. And the thing is, I think I've, I've covered this before, but uh, I think Forbes in 2023, I think, estimated that Trump's net worth was something like either $2.3 billion or $2.6 billion. But it's very opaque. It's very hard to make an assessment of how much he's he's so actually worth. His valuations are a little subjective, and you, you wouldn't wouldn't trust any one person's uh, take on what what, <laughs> what it is. <laughs> well, I, I, the one thing I'll say is I assume that Forbes, um, who's got good analysts, um, you know, they're, they're they're making reasonable judgments. But even even they say it comes with the caveat that you're dealing with somebody who is trying to promote the image that he's, he's worth more than he may be. And the other thing is, uh, and uh, Dan McLaughlin, uh, as ever, uh, makes a great point on this in, in connection with uh, another uh, element of Trump's finances that may be very important here, which is that it's a big difference between being liquid as far as, uh, you know, being rich as far as liquid assets are concerned versus being rich in, you know, like real estate, which you can't easily turn into cash, especially if it's heavily leveraged. And part of Trump's thing is he's got a lot, a lot of uh, fixed assets uh, and real estate, but most of that stuff is mortgaged. And it's not always easy to figure out uh, because a lot of this involves estimations of value, how much of those properties he could turn into cash quickly if he needed to, mm -hmm. uh, and how much he couldn't. And then I think the, uh, another moving target here, Rich, is remember in the case in front of Engeron, what we learned was a lot of these institutions that lent Trump money did it on the proviso that he had to maintain a certain level of net worth. I think it was like usually between two and 2.3 billion. Um, so you have the problem now of He's got these judgments against him. He may not be as rich as he was even a year ago. Um, and any bank that would lend him money now has to worry about competing with New York State and E. Jean Carroll as, as uh, judgment creditors for who gets to execute on the collateral if he can't pay his obligations. So he's really in a... He's in a bad way. He's in a real crunch. And the relief that he got yesterday, he, you know, as you point out, he tried to go to the appellate division and say, I want you to stop Tish James from being able to execute, to enforce the judgment. But I don't have $500 billion, a million dollars. And I don't have any prospect for getting $500 million because one of the elements of the verdict that Judge Engeron rendered 
was that Trump is forbidden for, for three years from seeking loans from any financial institution that's either chartered in New York State or does business in New York State. And almost every like, like big any, financial- like any, like any business? And it, well, I don't know how he gets a loan. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I you know, he, he, he let's say it, what happened yesterday. Just, just to because it'll be a little bit more easy to discuss this when we have, um, um, you know, hard terms here. Um, what the judge did, what the appellate judge did yesterday, whose name is Singh Anil Singh from the appellate division, sec, uh, first department. Appellate division is the is the is like in the federal system, we talk about the circuit court. In the New York system, it's the appellate division. It's the intermediate appellate court. It gets appeals from um, civil and criminal cases in Manhattan. So what the judge saying of the appellate division did yesterday is he said to Trump, you know, look, it's $500 million. You have to secure $500 million. We're not going to take $100 million and stop James from enforcing. If you want to stop her from enforcing, you've got to come up with the whole amount. But here's what we're going to do. That provision that Engeron put in that says you can't take loans anymore, we're taking that out. We're, that's going to be stayed until the end of the appeal, or at least until the whole appellate court can hear the case, which is going to happen uh, in the middle of next month. So um, now, at least on paper, Trump can seek loans because that provision of the verdict is no longer operative. I think the problem, though, is it takes two to tango, right? Trump can want a loan, but what bank is going to give him a loan at this point, given what his financial straits are? Mm -hmm. So I think it's still very questionable whether he's going to be able to pull together 500 million and what razzmatazz he can do with his assets uh, in order to pledge enough that he can um, that he can get a a loan like that, especially under circumstances where he's got big loans that are coming due this year in connection with his business, which I looked at another Forbes analysis yesterday. It's like $250 million in loans are coming. They mature this year, which means he's either got to pay them off or he's got to renegotiate them. So now he's at least got a little window to renegotiate them because he can get loans again. But the question is, is he going to find a bank to lend them the money? And then finally, there's the piece that Dan adds, which is, um, we talked a little bit about this last year. Trump has this truth social yeah, platform. I was just about to ask, ask about yeah. that. So he's, it's run by this uh, Trump media and tech group, and he's been trying to merge it with this what's called a special a SPAC. SPAC. Yes. Right. So, so you do know? you know what a SPAC is? I'm going to be so jealous because I've been wanting to know what a SPAC is for like years. And, and, and like if just in two weeks you become such a financial expert that you know what a SPAC is, I, I'm be very impressed. Well, I, I actually looked into this a year ago. Because- Andy, how about that? The yield curve? You know the yield curve <laughs> An inverted yield curve? <laughs> I finally learned what that was, and then it turned out it's like the one time it didn't predict a recession. So that was a fruitless. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is like Bitcoin. I had to become a Bitcoin expert, right? So, that, But we looked into this a little bit last year. We didn't get deeply into it because there was too much other, as always, there's like too much other Trump stuff going on. But um, – Trump wants to merge his um, 
Truth Social platform, which is the, what's it called? The, the Trump Media and Technology Group. He wants to merge that into a public company. And then they then that means the shares of the company would be publicly traded. He's got like a close to, I think, 70 percent uh, ownership stake in the uh, Truth Social part of it, the, tr- the Trump Media Company. So if they can do a public offering and it turns out that like he can he, he can turn his stock into value in the public stock market, that could be a bonanza of like three to four billion dollars for him. Now, that's on paper. I don't think this venture is is worth anything like that, but at least that's the hope. And the idea of a SPAC, which is a what's it a special purpose acquisition company, I believe is the is what it uh, stands for. So, you know, there's two ways of going public. One is to have a venture where you just do an initial public offering. But if you go that route, you have to comply with all these SEC disclosure requirements. And, you know, if Trump wanted to do that, the Trump organization would be public, right, which it's never been. So Trump doesn't want to deal with all that uh, transparency. So the other way you can do this is they have these entities that under the SEC rules, these SPACs, they exist in order to merge with another company and they're public companies. So in essence, it's like a pass through, except that you're, if you merge with a SPAC, your, your business is now public and you can do it with less disclosure than you would have to do with the SEC. The problem is, you know, there are rules about how you merge with a SPAC and there was at least some evidence that Trump violated some of them. Um, so the, the thing he was trying to merge into, uh, which is called Di- Digital Acquisition Corporation, um, they had to settle with the SEC. I think they had to pay like an $18 million fine in connection with some of the stuff that went on here. Plus my old office um, in the, the Securities and Commodities Unit was investigating this. Maybe it was they were investigating because it was Trump. Maybe they were investigating because it was fishy, but they were looking at this in any event. But the important thing is the the board of the SPAC of Digital Acquisition Corporation has so far, every time it's come up for a vote to merge with Trump's business, they've they've uh, postponed it. And the reason I assume they've postponed it is because they didn't have the votes to do it. So now, as Dan points out, they've settled with the SEC. So maybe this can go forward and they can get the merger done. They, they're supposed to, the next time they're supposed to vote, I think, is March 22nd. So Trump really needs the merger because he needs to try to get, he's not going to be able to, to sell his stock if the merger comes up because there are agreements that are in place um, when you have major people who are essentially the value of the of the venture, um, they get their stock on the condition that they don't that it's locked up for you know six months or a year or however long. So he won't be able to sell it right away to try to cash in that way. But if they can merge, and his shares, even though they're locked, would be high value. Let's say three million, a billion, or although I think that's um, it's it's very inflated. But let's say three billion. 
Um, the fact that he couldn't cash in and get, you know, trade the stock doesn't mean he couldn't borrow against it. So now he would have an asset that is free and clear in terms of like there are no mortgages on it or any of that stuff. He might be able to use that as collateral to convince a bank to give him the kind of loan that he's going to to get the bond. So that's why it's so critical for him to have that transaction go through. But I don't I don't know that it's going to go through or that it's going to be as lucrative as he hopes. So so if he can't get produce the money, then then what happens? He just then Tish James gets to start enforcing the judgment, and you know the first thing she would the first thing that would happen is she basically says Trump pay up. And he says, I can't pay up. And then uh, she starts litigation to start executing on his assets. Like like uh, seizing Trump Tower or what? what is? Yeah, well, what he, I think the first thing that would happen, Rich, that Trump would hate is that you're now in a litigation where they can sniff under every single thing that you have to find where your money is and how much of it there actually is. You know, you, now you could argue that James did a lot of that in connection with the fraud case. Mm-hmm. It's it's not the same as when you're doing a litigation about whether you can pay or not and what your assets are. Mm-hmm. So she would be able to do thoroughgoing discovery on every penny he's got and every bit of le- you know all the things that Trump has always tried to conceal from the public so that he could maintain um, an outsized image of uh, of what his value is and what his wealth is. She would be able to um, sort of pierce that with discovery about what his assets are. And then she would get on. The bad thing that would happen to Trump would be he he would say that he can't pay and she would say, yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess relatively speaking, I don't know if that's a good problem or a bad problem. But I just, you know, I thought uh, I thought this would amuse you. So I, I, um, I put together for us this little timeline today. Um, of what's going on here, but you know, basically, he's looking at a crunch because he's got, you know, he's got a big, he's really got to pay Super Tuesday in there in the midst of all this. Uh- yeah, so um, he's got he's got to respond in the E. Jean Carroll case over this weekend. Um, la- uh, uh, we didn't cover this last week in the E. Jean Carroll case. Um, he tried to kind of do the same thing he did with Tish James. He went into Judge Kaplan and basically asked him to stay execution of the of the judgment um until after the appeal but he didn't offer to put up any money and judge kaplan said to him that's not how it works um so he said that uh he, you know eugene carroll's going to respond today he's he, i think he's had it with poor alina hava so he basically said oh, really? that she has to, she has to respond by saturday at five o'clock um you know, when the judge is doing that. Oh, the judge is at it. I, th- I thought you were saying, yeah, yeah. saying Trump had had it. Oh, no, not Trump. No, no. I think Helena has been there. You know, look, she fights very hard for him. Um, she's, you know, she's not the most experienced lawyer, but she's obviously doing what he expects, which is she's in there punching. I don't think it's doing her any good because she's totally on the bad side of Kaplan, which is a bad place to be when you need something from the judge. Mm-hmm. Don't piss off the judge. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the first thing, even in law school, they get that right. You know, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so they're asking for Cap- Kaplan to give them some, um, give them a break on how much they'll have to post to appeal. I think he's going to make them post the whole thing. Um, so that'll happen next week. That's early next week. Um, Super Tuesday is is next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's March 5th. 
March 11th, now Tish James is going to go into the um, into the appellate division and oppose what Trump is trying to do there. Then uh, the next day after that, we have four more primaries. Um, March 18th, the appellate division is going to hear Trump's appeal on the bond, and they will decide whether he's got to post the whole thing or not. Uh, the next day, we have five more really big primaries, uh, Arizona, Florida, Illinois, Kansas, and Ohio. And I think by March 19th, if I'm running the numbers right, I think Trump can lock up the nomination. Um, then March 22nd is the day that he may or may not be able to close the merger on the Truth Social Digital Acquisition mm-hmm. Corporation thing. March 23rd, the next day, is the Louisiana primary. And then March 25th, both we have James, that's James's day to start enforcing the $454 million judgment unless the appellate division gives Trump some relief or Trump can come up with the money. And March 25th is also the day that his criminal trial in Manhattan starts, mm-hmm. yeah. which is which is going to go two to four weeks. So March will be somewhat eventful. Yeah, so the only, only thing you left out is March 28th, Yankees opening opening day. Oh, but uh, but re- really, really quickly, y- you are not uh, optimistic about uh, Trump's prospects in the Alvin Bragg case because the judge is uh, the judge seems to be cut from the same cloth as these other New York judges that have been considering his cases. New York judges. Yeah, I think I, I think that's right. I think Alvin Bragg found his uh, anger on in um, in Judge Juan Merchon, who who issued like a thirty page appeal. Uh, I'm sorry, a thirty page ruling last week where he essentially buys wholesale all of Bragg's theories about the case and denied all of Trump's. Uh, motions to dismiss the case, you know, disregarded the the uh, statute of limitations problems, disregarded the fact that uh, he that Bragg took a, a single misdemeanor transaction and turned it into thirty four felonies, uh, ignored the fact that uh, Bragg doesn't have any authority to enforce campaign federal campaign finance law, which he's trying to do in this case. Basically, he just bought on to Bragg's theory of the case through and through. And I think, you know, if Trump gets, as we know, Rich, what he's done is he's taken this one transaction and carved it into 34 parts. And in essence, what that means is if if you're a juror and you convict him of one, why wouldn't you convict him of all 34? So Fannie Willis, this has been turned into a great soap opera. Cable, at least Fox, has been covering it live. Some of the Proceedings. A, a a key a key factual question is whether the affair started after he she hired him or before. It seems like before, <laughs> even though they maintain it was after. Which just you know I I I don't know what the standards are for n- knocking someone out of a case like this, but there's no doubt they're just they they these are not these are not the finest people. But uh, what what do you make of it? Yeah, I think Rich, what what you just said um, about the standard is is a very important point that gets glossed over. Like a lot of people are saying, are they going to be able to prove for sure that uh, Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade were having an affair prior to mm-hmm. um, when they say, which is when the you know the case was already going on? Um, the evidence seems to be pretty overwhelming that they weren't truthful about that. But it's important to understand this is not a criminal trial. It's about whether she's 
you know, ethically capable of, of uh, running this litigation. And the standard in the law is the appearance of impropriety. You don't even necessarily have to prove impropriety, but if the appearance of impropriety is such that it compromises or would compromise public confidence in the integrity of judicial proceedings, then she's going to be dismissed. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a very good chance she's going to be dismissed, as is Wade. I, I have some question about whether they would necessarily knock out uh, Fannie Willis's entire office, you know, the Fulton County District Attorney's office, but her her office could be disqualified. And she's the one, I think, who's invested in this cockamamie Rico idea. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is, I think under Georgia law, uh, I hope I'm not proved wrong about this, but I think this is right. Uh, if they're disqualified, then the case would go to the uh, attorney general's office. And the attorney general in, Flo- in Georgia is a Republican. So it'd be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah. So, so the standard is not, um, as reading about this the other day, it's not whether the, the case, uh, w- w- whether the, the unethical conduct involves whether the case, um, w- w- the decision to bring the case in the first place. It's not, it's the, the standard's looser than that. Because I was reading something that was suggesting, oh, she'll probably be fine. Because it's not as though she brought the case in order to hire a Wade, in order to pay Wade, in order to go on vacations with Wade. And that's what they'd have to prove. But that, that's not necessarily what they have to prove. Well, first of all, we don't even know if that's true, right? Like, for example, I, I, I think you could make an argument that the reason they brought a RICO is that it's much more complicated and long-term than what they should have done in this case, which was indict like seven little crimes of the kind they've taken guilty pleas on so far, mm-hmm. right? But part of the reason she did it was to keep the gravy train rolling for a few years. So you could argue that. But- you know, let's remember, she's already been disqualified with respect to one defendant. And let's re- let's remember this this go this sh- can show you how low this standard is. Um, she was disqualified from prosecuting the now lieutenant governor of Georgia when he was a state uh, senator who was involved in, um, you know, the slate of, of Trump electors that they were trying to substitute for Biden electors. Uh, Willis is disqualified because during the investigation, she headlined a fundraiser for that guy's Democratic opponent in the lieutenant governor's race. So that's like far afield of anything that's actually related to the case, right? It just goes to her... Uh, ethical obligations and her bias and, you know, whether she's doing the case because justice demands that she's doing the case or she's doing the case as a political retribution uh, against a partisan nemesis. So this is just a way of saying this is kind of an amorphous standard and the judge is never going to be reversed uh, for a finding that, you know, because of the way she's handled this particularly rich if it turns out that there's strong evidence that they lied uh, in their sworn statements. Now, uh, Nathan Wade did an affidavit in support of a submission that Fannie Willis didn't. She didn't. She signed the submission, but she didn't do the sworn statement. But in it, he says that they didn't start having a romantic relationship until 2022. 
that seems to have been blown to smithereens. The other thing I think that's amusing that he did, which I've never heard of this before, but I understand that in the divorce proceeding, he had claimed that he hadn't had any extramarital affairs, and then he changed his testimony from that. Instead of saying, saying that he did, he changed it from that to Fifth Amendment. <laughs> I can't say I've ever heard of that one before. Um, but so anyway, I mean, th- these guys are, they have a problem. And in all seriousness, um, there is a federal statute. I think we may have talked about this before. Fittingly, it's section 666 of the penal code, um, which makes it a crime for a public official uh, in a uh, in a venture or a, an entity a state entity that gets federal funding, which the Fulton County District Attorney's Office does, um, to divert public funds to personal purposes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the other thing they have to worry about here is, you know, potential federal criminal liability as well as state liability. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's got a lot of problems. I don't see her on this case very long. All right. So I said we're going to talk, talk about the Florida and classified documents, but in the interest of not running too long, let's skip over that and get to the other big story. Hunter Biden actually showed up and I guess didn't, didn't speaking of the fifth, didn't take the fifth and testified. Democrats came out just after the first hour and said, this is blown impeachment to smithereens. This impeachment inquiry is destroyed by Hunter Biden's compelling testimony about how his father had absolutely nothing to do with his business. Yes, the testimony was so compelling that they were out on the Capitol steps while he was giving it rather than, <laughs> than listening to it. Not that that was rehearsed or, or uh, anything of the sort. Uh, look, I'm very surprised that Hunter went in and testified. You know, I've said here any number of times that the reason he was fighting this was he didn't want to take the fifth, um, which he would have to do because of the two criminal indictments. We haven't got a transcript yet, so it'll be very interesting to see uh, how he reacted to any questions that bore on the the uh, charges uh, in the two cases against him. But he did testify. It seemed to me that the only thing we had for sure, Rich, is the opening statement. And it seems to me that like right off the bat, it seems to me he's given false testimony. I mean, he says in his opening statement that he never involved his father in his business. I I heard that yesterday. I was involved in the Fox coverage of this, so I heard that at about, uh, I want to say like 10, 15 in the morning. Um, I think by 10, 18, I had found like three instances where either in text or in, uh, in oral recordings, he was involving his father in the business, you know, including the WhatsApp uh, uh, extortionate message where he says, I'm sitting here with dad. Um, and he shakes down the, the, the Chinese business associates. So now apparently they, the one piece of news we've heard is they did confront him with the WhatsApp message, as you would expect mm-hmm. yesterday. And he says, according to what's been reported, we again, haven't seen the transcript, but it's claimed that he said that he was either drunk or drugged out when he said that, and that his dad wasn't actually sitting with him. And I don't think that if that's what he said, I don't think that's going to prove to be credible testimony. Well, so, because, so why not? Well, first of all, the message itself doesn't doesn't read like it's coming from somebody who's drugged out. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we have we have specimens of what Hunter is like when he sends texts. Well, when he's clearly drunk or drugged out, this doesn't read like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Secondly, after this shakedown, they actually did get the $5 million. It also doesn't make sense to me, you know, understand this is CEFC they're dealing with. These are, this is an arm of the Chinese regime. It makes no sense to me that he would say he was sitting there with his father under circumstances where these Chinese guys might very well have called back and said, let me talk to your father, as, as a number of, we now know, uh, his business associates did. And it would have been profoundly embarrassing in that sensitive moment for Hunter if they had called back and said, uh, let's talk to your father. And he, it turned out he hadn't been there. So with these people, with the kind of money that was at stake and the, the serious nature of the people he was dealing with, I would find it very unlikely that he said that Biden was there if Biden wasn't there. We do know he was at Biden's house because there were photographs of him and he doesn't look drugged out or drunk in the photographs. I think he's driving dad's uh, convertible, right? Um, and then he was clearly functioning at a pretty efficient level for the ensuing seven or eight days when they got paid. You know, he, he, they had to go through all the mechanics of setting up this Hudson, uh, Hudson West 3 business. And he got his retainer, which I think was 500,000. Uh, 500, that was like the first taste. And then they got $4.8 million, which he then doled out, you know, in part to Jim, who ultimately gives a slice to Joe, which, as you pointed out, is 10% for the big guy, right? Mm -hmm. It was like yeah. 400,000 slice and 40,000 went to, uh, to Joe Biden as, as repayment of a loan, of yeah. course. <laughs> um, so so when, when would we expect to see a transcript? I think Comer's going to want to put it out fast. Um, because the Democrats are trying to run around and spin what he said. I think Homer would, Comer and I think the House Republicans would have had a motive to, to walk Hunter through the actual evidence and keep him pinned down on the evidence. So if I'm them, I, I can't get this transcript out fast enough because it's much better to see what he said than listen to what the Democrats are saying about what he yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and what's your take on just where the impeachment inquiry Stands and we had Democrats saying oh, it was blown up by this testimony. You also have Democrats saying it was blown up by this uh, uh, indictment of the FBI informant who s said that he was told that that uh, Brisma was bribing uh, the Bidens. Um, so is, is this where wh where are we with this inquiry? And do you think impeachment will ultimately happen? Well, I I, I never thought impeachment would happen. I've always thought that this was they just wanted to have a parallel proceeding against Biden while Trump was being put through the gauntlet of the mm -hmm. of the criminal proceedings. And I still think that's true. I thought the most intriguing thing I heard yesterday, Rich, was uh, when Comer spoke publicly, he talked about being ready to pretty much wrap up his investigation. And if that's true, you know, you would be moving either to writing a report or giving some consideration to whether you do articles of impeachment. I, I just I don't think they're going to have the votes for it. They had enough trouble getting the inquiry over the finish line. But I think, you know, if you if you I think they've overplayed their hand, just like the Democrats typically do. If this hadn't been impeachment, if what they said is, look, what we're about here is not making a criminal case and it's not impeaching the president. It's about political accountability. The Bidens got $24 million from corrupt and anti-American regimes. And the only asset that seems to across the table the other way is Joe Biden's political influence. Mm -hmm. And they should have done a searching investigation of that, which they have and put out a, a very 
thorough report. And I think that would have been very politically damaging for Biden, which is exactly what their objective, I think, is. And in this instance, Biden deserves the the, uh, political damage he's going to sustain from this. The only other thing I'd say about the Russian guy, Smirnov, um, Alexander Smirnov, um, I think this is yet another instance of Democrats and their pals in the intelligence community way overplaying their hand. Because what they're going out there claiming that it's Russia, Russia, Russia again, and the whole thing is Russian misinformation. I mean, most of the information about the Burisma thing, and the Burisma is just like one piece of a much bigger thing that has very little to do with Russia. But most of the damaging information about that doesn't come from Russians or Smirnov. It comes from Devin Archer and Biden himself, who said that he, you know, threatened uh, the the Ukrainian government that if they didn't fire the prosecutor who was investigating Burisma, he was going to withhold a billion dollars in American aid at a time they really needed it. So I think by playing the stupid Russia, Russia, Russia thing, which I think for normal people, it just makes you roll your eyes after the after these years that they've put us through with that. But the other thing is, it just gave a lot of pretty effective people the opportunity to marshal that evidence and show that upwards of 95% of it has nothing to do with Smirnov or Russia. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it simply doesn't come from them. And I'll be interested to see how the Smirnov prosecution comes out. Um, you know, the way it's been reported, it looks like he's an out and out liar. Um, and I'm suspicious about that because the FBI said he was a useful informant going back to 2010 and they were able to corroborate a lot of his information. I suspect we'll have to see how it plays out. But I think, you know, you've pointed this out before. These 1001 cases where you charge someone with, with false statements, they're, they're not based on a recording or a transcript. They're based on an FBI report of what the guy said. Right. And there's always an issue about what words he actually said versus what assumptions they made when they were summarizing what, what the operation of his mind was and summarizing what he said. Um, it'd be interesting to see how that case works out. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Andy McCarthy. Thanks, Rich.